Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We're a church for imperfect people only. We're in our series, LA is Corinth. Because as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we see so many similarities between that city and ours. Like LA, it was a port city filled with wealth and immigration. It was a sports capital, second only to the Olympics. Like LA, it was extremely sexualized with Aphrodite as the goddess of love and her temple just outside the city. A part of worshiping her was sleeping with one of her 1,000 priestess. Lastly, like LA, the church was deeply divided along political lines. Sound familiar? And the whole time, Paul is trying to call the community of Christ to live Christian values in the midst of this culture, and it's a fight. As we walk through this letter, we are encouraged and called in the same ways to live for Jesus while living in L.A. All right, so we are continuing our series on the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'll be very honest with you. When you're doing a series uh, and you're getting ready for, for uh, the, the message, uh, you have to do what's actually in front of you for the next time, right? So... You have to follow. So there are no pet sermons, no um, idea like like uh, teachings that you you're attracted to. You just have to preach kind of what's in front of you. So we are at that stage right now where we are in First Corinthians chapter five. And so let me share with you. And again, I'm just being honest. Uh, the message today will be very serious and very sobering. I love to encourage people. I love to teach and encourage. Uh, but this message isn't really about that. And so I had to really, uh, as I was working through this, uh, think through, okay, how am I going uh, to communicate uh, the Word of God faithfully in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? And so let me share this with you. We here at Renew Church, we hold to a high view of Scripture. That means that we see God's Word, Scripture is God's Word, as our absolute authority in our lives. Uh, we believe that's, that it's the inspired word of God, and it's given for us, not only for our encouragement, but also for our obedience. And so as I was uh, putting this uh, message together, the verse that came, kept coming up to me, and it's one of my life verses, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And, and we have it up. And this is what it says. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. That means it's inspired by God. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that is so true. Sometimes we need God's word to teach us. Maybe uh, about truths that we're ignorant of. Or we need a fuller understanding. Or we just need to be reminded in a teaching format. But sometimes we need God's uh, inspired word to train us to become more and more mature in the areas of our witness or our service, whatever God has called us to. And sometimes we need God's inspired word to encourage us when we're fearful or unsure or insecure at certain points in our lives. That's when God's word comes to encourage us. But then there are times when we need God's inspired word to rebuke us and correct us when we turn away or we disobey. 
The beautiful thing is that God's word meets us where we are. That as I'm giving this message, that you, and it could be a hundred people here sitting in this room, all hear the word of God the way that God wants you to hear it. Whether it's to teach, or to train, or to encourage, or even rebuke and correct. God's word meets us wherever we find ourselves. Can I get an amen? Amen. Well, today's message finds us at a place of rebuke and correction. And these truths, although it may be a little uncomfortable, may be difficult to digest, is essential for the servant of God to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the truth that we're going to study is in the area of church discipline. If you're taking notes, write down church discipline. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, uh, verses 1 through 13, just the whole chapter, okay? Now, church discipline is the act of correcting someone who is living an unrepentant lifestyle of sin. It's a God-ordained process by which the local church calls a professing Christian back to repentance when they're being unrepentant. So remember the context for this letter. Paul had just, Paul had started this church of Corinth. They were, in, um, uh, metaphorically speaking, his babies, his kids. And he had worked a year and a half discipling them and setting up the foundations. Now, Paul was a missionary. That's what he was called to. And so he left Corinth to do missionary work, to share the gospel, to evangelize in other areas. But as he was doing that, he kept hearing reports that his babies, the Corinthian church, was becoming mired in sin. That they were actually backsliding into the same lifestyle that they had been saved from. And so Paul sends them a letter to rebuke and correct their falling and their failing. And in chapter 5, he calls for church discipline. Okay, Now I want you to notice three truths about church discipline. And if you're taking notes, uh, I'll say this a couple of times so you can get it, is number one, here's the first truth, the realization of church discipline. The realization of church discipline. Let's look in verse one together. It is actually being reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now the words sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's where we get the word porn or pornography. And Paul, if you read that, verse 1, uh, the, the tone is he's angry. He's upset with the Corinthian church because of their toleration of pornea, their toleration of sexual sin. As a matter of fact, in the previous chapter, in 1 Corinthians 4.21, Paul says, I'm going to come to you shortly. Right? Last week we talked about this. I'm going to come to you shortly. And he says, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come to you in love and a gentle spirit? So Paul is saying, hey, you're my kids. Should I come to you? And when I come to you, do I bring the rod of discipline? Or do I bring the right hand of fellowship? The way I come to you will be determined by the way that you handle the issues that are set before you. Okay? And he's saying this, not only are you allowing sexual sin in the church, but you're tolerating an outrageous sin that even the Gentiles don't tolerate, and that is incest. 
a man in the Corinthian congregation was living in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, incest was illegal in the Greek world, right? The Roman Empire, the Greek world had made it illegal to commit incest. But you know, that's the world. The Bible also forbade, forbade this. And here I want to make the point, the Corinthian Christians knew this. They heard the Old Testament given every Sunday. In Leviticus chapter 18, it says, no one, verse 6, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Verse 8, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. So the reason why Paul is angry with the Corinthians was that incest was occurring within the church and they were ignoring clear biblical truth. They were to be Bible Christians, right? They were to uh, make the word of God their absolute authority and they were ignoring biblical truth. As a matter of fact, they were tolerating sexual sin. And on top of all of this, verse 2, look at it. He says, and you are proud. On top of all of the toleration, they were proud of it. They took pride in their tolerant behavior. Verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Now, think about this. How could anyone be proud of incest within their congregation? How could they even boast about this? Well, let me give you a bit of background. Corinth was arguably the greatest port city of the ancient world. All trade in Greece had to grow, go through the city of Corinth. So that made this city extremely prosperous. It was influential. Because of all the people that came in and out of the city, it was very cosmopolitan. Corinth was, in fact, the third greatest city in all of the Roman Empire. Okay? It was the center for trade and commerce. So internationally, all kinds of people, all kinds of cultures traveled in and out of Corinth. It was the athletic center of the world. Many of you are watching the Olympics. Well, in the ancient world, the Isthmian Games that were in Corinth was a type of Olympics where all kinds of people came to not only participate but also view the Isthmian Games. It was the entertainment mecca of the world. Famous people, celebrities from the ancient world flocked to Corinth. Corinth was also the porn capital of the world. Sex was so readily available to any citizen that wanted it. As a matter of fact, there was a temple called the Temple of Aphrodite. Do you guys know, uh, maybe you think back to your high school uh, days when you studied mythology. Do you know who Aphrodite was? She's the goddess of love. And so there was a temple built to the goddess of love where a thousand priestess prostitutes would go around and have sex with whoever wanted it as an expression of worship. So in their culture, Corinth uh, denoted uh, sex with worship. So imagine all the opulence, all the uh, excess, all the sensuality that would create this sin city culture among the Corinthians. The Greeks also actually made fun of the Corinthians, and they coined the phrase Corinthianize to describe someone who led a free, sexual, immoral lifestyle. That would be the term to Corinthianize. You see, the Corinthian Christians not only lived in this sin city culture, but they were saved out of that culture, that sexual culture in Jesus Christ. But we see that that culture was influencing their lives. 
that they were actually boasting of how tolerant they were of sexual sin. They would say things like, well, we don't judge people's lifestyles here. We're all about love. Jesus is about love, and so we don't judge, right? No judgment here. It's all love. Or we just love people the way that Jesus did. And if that means that somebody's hung up on that, well, you know, we're going to allow that. Or we're more progressive than the rest of the world. This is the first century CE, right? We don't live in BCE. We live in CE. So, of course, you know, we got to get with the times. You know, back then they had hang-ups about that. We don't have those kind of hang-ups. So Paul is performing an intervention for the Corinthian church. He's telling him, hey, wake up. Hey, realize that this is sin. Verse 2, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? The word mourning is the response to a personal tragedy or catastrophe. If a certain a storm hit on the seas and killed your family, the response would be to mourn. That's the idea. That instead of being proud of it, you should be weeping. You should be in agony and sorrow at this that's happening in the church. You see, the first thing that you have to do in the church is to recognize sin. And the church can't do anything to heal a situation until it first recognizes the serious sins that there is and admits to it. See, when the church gets to a place that it doesn't mourn over serious sin, then it's headed for disaster. So the first truth is there must be a realization for church discipline. Now, the second truth is the reason for church discipline. After Paul's intervention, now comes action. Verse 2, put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. The solution to this sexual sin without repentance is excommunication. And excommunication is just a fancy word to say, let that person out of your fellowship. Don't have fellowship with that person in the church, right? And Paul is saying it's a responsibility of the church to kick that person out of the church. Well, you might be saying and thinking to yourself, is that the right move? I mean, it doesn't feel like the loving thing to do, does it? I mean, doesn't he need the church more than ever as he's dealing with sin to come alongside of him and be tolerant of him and to help him? In our culture, we never see excommunication as the right move. But I want to show you three reasons why this is the right move for the church to make. And Paul makes these reasons. Number one reason Jesus expects it. Jesus expects it. Let's look in verse 3 and 4. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Now, Paul appeals to the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus that is present. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, excommunication is the right move to make. Excommunication is the righteous action to take. Now, why? Why is this? Because Jesus supports it with his name. In the name of Jesus means in accordance with his will. It's what Jesus wants them to do. But it's not only in the name of Jesus, it's also in the power of Jesus. It's by Jesus' authority and power. So how does Paul know that Jesus supports this? How does he know that? Well, it's because Jesus told them to do this this way when he was here on this earth. 
And in Matthew chapter 18, okay, and Pastor Wilson has done an amazing job when we were in uh, the book of Matthew, uh, expositing and uh, doing that. So I don't want to belabor anything that he already gave, but I want to remind you of what was said. Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, while he was still on this earth, tells his disciples how to deal with serious sin in the church. He starts off by saying, if there's serious sin, go and confront that. If they're unrepentant, take witnesses and confront it. If they're still unrepentant, then go to the church, and the church leaders should come and confront it. And if they're still unrepentant, then you excommunicate them. You kick out the unrepentant person. That's what Jesus said. And I want you to look in chapter 18, verse 18. He continues uh, with this, and this is the part I want you to see. Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, they all knew what that means. To bind means that person is guilty. To loose means that person is innocent. So here's what Jesus is saying. When the church needs to make a judgment decision on whether guilt or innocence, whatever the decision that is correctly made will be supported in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's continue reading in verse 19. It says, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So Jesus, in that same idea, says, don't be afraid to act in discipline because even if it's just two of you in the church, God will support the judgment, okay? And then verse 20, look at it, continue on. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Did you know that this verse that's so widely uh, uh, memorized and so widely quoted, it's a text about church discipline. The context is church discipline. A lot of times we make it about like prayer meetings and corporate gatherings, right? But really, it's about church discipline in that context, right? Excommunication, Jesus, heaven agrees to it. The Father supports it. And Jesus is with us in name, and he gives us the power to do it. That's the idea. The second reason is the sinner needs it. Now, I carefully uh, worded this so that you understand this. By sinner, of course, I mean the Christian, right, who has been saved from sin, of course. They have new life in Christ, but yet they still are unrepentant and still living in that sin. That's what I mean by sinner. The sinner needs it. So even though excommunicating a Christian from church fellowship may be difficult and uncomfortable, even though it could be very unpopular, the church is responsible to do it. Why? Well, let's look. Paul says it in verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? It sounds very intense, very strong, but let me unpack this. The Bible calls Satan the prince and the power of this fallen world. The Lord Jesus, of course, is the rightful ruler, and someday he'll rule and reign. He reigns in the hearts of his people, right? We see it in the church, but still... For at this time, the world is fallen, and Satan thrives in this fallen world. So delivering a Christian to Satan means to excommunicate them from the fellowship of God's blessing and God's favor, right? The people of God, 
and placing him into this fallen world, placing him outside of the protection and favor and blessing of God, and so that God uses Satan and the fallen world to bring suffering, to bring pain because of their unrepentant heart. Do you get that? Why excommunicate? Why withhold fellowship? Why allow this kind of misery and suffering? Why do we do this seemingly hateful thing? Verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved. The idea of saved is actually the word delivered. So that his spirit may be delivered from sin. You see, the end result of this church discipline is restoration. To have them come to their spiritual senses. To bring them back into a right relationship with God. Deliverance from that particular sin. I remember when I was in high school and I witnessed a excommunication for the first time in the church. It was a very popular, very charismatic deacon who was sleeping around with other women in the church. He was committing adultery with, uh, uh, against his wife. And I remember when the church realized that, they immediately went to Matthew chapter 18. And when he was completely unresist, uh, unrepentant and unresisted, they had to excommunicate him. And I remember it was a year later, because I was in high school, and I remember that, la that year, that person came back. That person was miserable, right? That person came to a census. And I remember before the whole church, he repented. He shared, you know, I want to be restored again. And the beauty of it was, you know, after high school and everything, you know, after, you know, going uh, to prepare for ministry, I would come back, you know, uh, in college and I'd see this person restored back with his wife, doing amazing ministry, as if that had never happened and he was growing in the Lord. That's the purpose of church discipline. As a matter of fact, there's a tradition that tells us that 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you could put it up, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is all about this person who was restored, this incestuous person who was living in sin is restored. Now, again, this is tradition. I'm not saying that we know conclusively that this is talking about this, but there are enough Bible scholars, there's enough tradition to, to, to at least uh, posit this. And I think it's an awesome thing. So let me read it, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look in verse 5. Paul is saying this. It's his second letter. It's his, uh, another letter, right? His second letter to the Corinthians. And he says this. If anyone has caused grief he has not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him, what's the punishment? Excommunication. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see that you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Now, if it is indeed about this person, there was restoration. And Paul says that the church was tested to see if they would be faithful to performing that. You see, the purpose for church discipline is repentance. It's for that person to change from this heinous sin that they're involved in. The goal of excommunication is the restoration of a relationship. Number one, Jesus expects it. Number two, the sinner needs it, and number three, the church is protected by it. The church is protected by it. By the way, I need to share this, just in case you misunderstand. Excommunication is a severe, extreme measure in the church. 
So please don't think that I'm advocating that you should practice this as normative and treat each other this way. I excommunicate you. I excommunicate you. That's not what I'm saying, okay? We don't want to be legalistic Pharisee witch hunters that go around in any little thing, right, that we, that we deem as sin. You know, we practice this punitive church discipline as a regular exercise. That's not what I'm advocating. As a matter of fact, uh, I had a pastor friend, and he doesn't mind that I share this because I share this in church planning and evangelism seminars all the time. But this pastor friend of mine, great Christian, amazing leader, when he first started a church, he called it Disciple Church. Okay? And he said, I know the Great Commission, you know, you guys want to focus on evangelism. I feel I'm called to focus on discipleship. I want to create these deep, amazing disciples. So I'm going to, you know, start disciples, Disciple Church, and we're going to practice Matthew 18 all the time. Okay? And we're going to make sure that we create these, like, soldiers for Christ. Two years, and they folded. They absolutely folded. And I remember doing exit interviews with a lot of their leaders, and what had happened is they were just burnt out and resentful and tired and upset because they kept nitpicking, right? It's all about the great commission. That's what God called us to, the great commission. When you focus on doing that and nitpicking and doing those things, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. And you look, when Paul talks about the Corinthian church and he's correcting them, they have all kinds of things that they need to correct. Paul doesn't excommunicate all of them. There'd be nobody left in the church, right? So that's not what he's doing. But when there's serious sin, like sexual sin, it needs to be taken care of, right? We need to show grace and patience and kindness and gentleness. And we'll see that even in 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about how we can be long-suffering in our love for one another, all those things. But why then exercise this severe extreme measure of excommunication in the church? For the sake of self-preservation as a church. You see, sexual sin is an extremely dangerous evil. We're going to study more when we get to chapter 6 and 7. But sexual sin is a destructive fire that spreads. Sexual sin is a deadly cancer that spreads. Verse 6, let's look at what Paul says. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Now, how many of you, you love food shows? Can I, get a, can I get a show of hands? No? Okay, there's just a couple of us, okay? I love food shows. I'll watch Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives or Bizarre Foods. I can just spend the whole day watching food shows. You could tell. I love food, right? Okay, but as I watch this, a lot of times they'll come to an episode where a restaurateur is making bread. And I love bread, okay? Dietarily and, you know, I'm not supposed to eat a lot of bread, but I just, I love, are you like me, right? Are you all lactose, no, not gluten-free, not lactose intolerant. Okay, good. You guys all love bread, right? Well, what the restaurateur would do when they're making bread was, is they would put yeast or leaven, right, in the batch of bread. And that's what makes it taste so good. It's amazing, right, to eat a yeasty piece of bread, okay? They would take a piece of dough from the previous batch they'd made of bread, uh, of dough, and uh, it already had the yeast in that dough. And then they would put that previous piece into the new batch of bread. That previous yeast then of dough would be used as a starter. Okay? And that starter would be put into the new bread so that it would leaven it. And it would spread all into that uh, dough. Well, this was the same practice that was used 
even thousands of years ago as it is today. So Paul is using the illustration, the church is that batch of new dough. And yeast and leaven, although it tastes really good and it's good, right? Spiritually, it's bad because this word uh, yeast or leaven can be used interchangeably is always a symbol of evil in the Bible. And there are three things that leaven does in a church. Number one, fermentation. Leaven ferments bread. That means, and fermenting is, of course, that con controlled, uh, safe spoilage, that corruption. And it's a symbol that sin corrupts and spoils the church. Not only fermentation, but also permeation. That leaven permeates bread. That sin infiltrates the entire church and ruins the entire church. Not only fermentation and permeation, but also resurrection. That leaven resurrects old into new. Meaning that sin brings toxicity from your past life into your present church. So get this, Paul is warning the Corinthian Christians, don't allow that old yeast to be a starter for your Christian life because it will ferment and permeate and resurrect evil into the life of the church if you ignore it, if you just let it be. That's what Paul is saying is the danger of it. Verse 7, let's continue. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you already are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now, let's stop right there. You're like, okay, I understand yeast, and I think I understand unleavened bread, what he's getting at, but man, you lost me at Passover lamb. What is that all about? What's he talking about, okay? Well, this is a marvelous, magnificent metaphor that you see. In Exodus chapter 12, God told Israel that they would finally exit Egypt. That's what Exodus, Exodus is all about, exiting Egypt. God told Israel, okay, say goodbye to that old life of slavery that you've existed in for 40 years. We're going to exit Egypt. And God gave them a feast of Passover where the unleavened bread and the Passover lamb is what they ate. Okay, Their life was about to change. The old life where they were slaves in Egypt was now about to be a new life where they were free, free people. And the Passover lamb symbolized Israel was set free to exit Egypt to have a new life as free people in the promised land. So the Passover lamb severed the old life as slaves. They ate the Passover lamb, right? It was this idea of exiting Egypt as free people. Now the Old Testament pictures always, sim uh, always symbolize a New Testament reality. The Old Testament pictures always foreshadow Jesus the Messiah. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen? Jesus is the Passover Lamb who died on the cross for us. He ended our slavery to sin. He broke the shackles that we were in bondage to. He gave us freedom through his blood. Because of what Jesus, the Passover Lamb, has does, done, we are free. We exit slavery in Egypt because of him, okay? So when Israel exited Egypt, they were told by God, only bake and take unleavened bread, right? They were to throw out the leaven of the old Egyptian life. Don't bring that slave yeast with you into the new life. That's what God was saying. And the symbol was that God didn't want any remnant of that slave life to be brought into the promised land. Don't put slave yeast into the free bread. It's going to ruin the bread. 
See, we've been saved out of bondage in Egypt because of Jesus, our Passover lamb. We've been given freedom in Christ. We've been emancipated to new life. We've been promised an eternal land. Don't go back to Egypt by mixing the slave leaven in with the new bread that we have. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, therefore, let us keep the festival. What festival? Well, it's the Passover lambs, the unleavened bread. It's the exodus. It's all the stuff that symbolizes our new life. Let's keep that festival. Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness. So when you think about it, that's what sexual sin is. It's malice and it's wickedness. When you think about sexual abuse, it's just malice. It's objectifying people and using them for your own pleasure and throwing them away. When I think of uh, people that are being brought to justice like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, we see that the things that they did to, to, to others, they did once at one isolated time, but those people for years have been living in torment. What do you call that? That's malice. Not only that, but wickedness. Wickedness has the idea of perversion from the original intention. That means sex was, in God's eyes, a beautiful gift to us that is to be used in the context of marriage. It's a beautiful thing. But what sin does is it corrupts it. It creates something that was not originally intended for, and it brings pain, and it brings all kinds of problems. That's why sexual sin is so scary. That's why uh, Paul is saying it needs to be taken care of. Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the new unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what we need to celebrate, you guys. The festival is a celebration of our new life. It's our life in Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, the third point, and again, I realize because of time, I'm not going to be able to get through all of it, but there is a very important point that I want to give you. The third point is the rule for church discipline. The rule for church discipline. And I promise you, I'm going to go at this really quick. But listen, in verse 9 it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge the inside? God will judge the outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is really important when we talk about church discipline. Church discipline is for the saved people who are unrepentant in the church. It is not talking about the unsaved people. And here's where the church sometimes gets it so wrong, is that we judge non-Christians who don't have the spirit of God, who are maybe living in a moral lifestyle, and we want to cut ourselves and isolate ourselves from them, and we tolerate unrepentant Christians who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, but are living in gross sexual sin. That is twisted, right? We are called, and the Bible gives us great, that great commission, we're called to people in the world. We're called to love them and show grace to them and share the gospel with them because they don't have the Spirit of God, and we want them to know Christ. But what we have to do to keep the church pure is when we have unrepentant gross, huge sins, like sexual sins, we need to take care of it 
and we need to be disciplined in it. Why? Why is that important? It's because the world, right, is looking at the church. The world is a fallen place. It's messed up. It's a very, very hard place to be. We promise new life in Christ is beautiful and, and wonderful, and it's a place where they should feel safe. When they see church leaders abusing children, when they see church leaders doing these kinds of things and sex, you know, gross sexual immorality in the church, they look at it and say, well, how are they different from the stuff I'm facing out here? Do you understand? That's why Paul is saying, hey, we need to keep the church unleavened because the, the leaven, the leaven person, they look to the church as the safe place for us. Amen? That's the rule of church discipline. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that even a hard message can be used to encourage our hearts, to strengthen us. We pray, Lord, that we would grow in this, that we would learn how to keep not only ourselves pure, but how to keep our church pure by, by encouraging one another to love and good deeds. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.